0: Light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hey, hey, welcome back to Autumn's Oddities. I'm Autumn, right up top, little bit of business. I am once again asking you, I'm Bernie meming right now. I am once again asking you, to please rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you listen to. If you have iTunes, it would be great if you could leave a review there or just push, you know, the 5-star button. The algorithm there um, pretty much determines how much coverage your podcast gets. Like if they'll put it on a featured list, if they'll, you know, say recommended for you, and so on and so forth business done onto displeasure. I am sick again. I think this is obnoxious. Um, You know, that's the theme song that I will be singing for the season, I'm sure. We put our daughter into preschool for the first time in a year. We knew this was coming. Uh, We tried in the fall of last year, but you know, a COVID uptick pretty much shut it down and we just had to take her out. They were charging us full price and she was never in school. So yeah, no. Now she's back and has no immunity whatsoever, so she's constantly getting sick and passing it right along to us. I'm not going to stop holding her or kissing her or, you know, occasionally forgetting and sharing food with her. If you have kids, if you go to work in an office, if you go anywhere in public, pretty much, you are probably right there with me at least in the United States. I don't know about the rest of the world. This is just a terrible time of year for illness. And unfortunately, the world does not stop when we get sick. Plus, the weather here is legitimately out of control. Um, It went from the mid to high 70s in Fahrenheit to or 21 degrees in Celsius, I had to look that up, I don't know that, to freezing and snowing literally overnight last week. Like I'm not exaggerating or using the word literally out of context, it was literal. One day it was 70 degrees, the next day I woke up and snow was falling so much that we accumulated like two to three inches and I had to drive an hour and a half away and was frightened. Good times, good times. On to today's episode. If you have a fear of plane crashes, I mean, who doesn't, or Final Destination really did a number on you, I don't know, maybe sit this one out, because I'm going to go pretty pretty deep into detail in terms of how a flight crashed. Um, I'm not going to talk about the ways in which people died, but I am going to talk about the mechanical and technical errors that most likely led to this very strange disaster. A passenger plane goes missing on a routine flight over the Atlantic. There's no warning, no apparent cause, and no evidence. The mysterious disappearance points to a frightening possibility. Could the very system designed to make flying safer be responsible? Investigators attempting to piece together what happened were shocked at what they found. The aircraft involved in this accident was a four-year-old Airbus a 330 I'm going to get technical for a minute. Registered as FGZCP. Its first flight was on February 25, 2005, and it was delivered two months later to the airline on April 15, 2005. At the time of the crash, it was Air France's newest A330. The aircraft was powered by two General Electric CF680E1A3 engines, not that I know what that means, but I'm sure someone does, with a maximum thrust of 68,530 or 60,400 IBF takeoff slash max continuous, giving it a cruise speed range of Mach 0.82-0.86. So it's very, very fast. The aircraft underwent a major overhaul on April 16, 2009, and at the time of the accident had accumulated about 18,870 flying hours. Sounds safe, right? The plane had an impeccable safety record. In fact, before this accident, this type of plane had never crashed in civilian service. Modern passenger planes have autopilot and a form of computerized pilot assistance called fly-by-wire. The A330 was no different. When the pilot moved the control stick, it's connected to the flight computer that interprets what the pilot is trying to do. It contains all the pilot input within the parameters of what can be safely accomplished. If it's beyond what the airplane can do safely, the pilot can't make the airplane perform that. Pretty simple. It should make the plane easier and safer to fly. The system will protect the airplane from the pilot causing any errors. So knowing that that system was in place, what could have caused this airplane to go missing? This accident is one of the most significant in history. More and more, we trust computers with our lives and it's not just flying. We have self-driving cars, trucks, and trains now, and also legitimately everything that we use and do practically, Is automated in some way using an app, using the internet, using something. We are extremely reliant on computer technology now. Automation has taken over, but that begs the question, what happens when things go wrong, especially at 33,000 feet? The paradox here is that automation, which is meant to make flying safer, may have created new dangers that no one could have predicted. At 7.30 p.m. on May 31st, 2009, at the Rio de Janeiro Airport, Air France Flight 447 takes off on a routine flight to Paris. They took off on time with 228 people on board, and the flight was scheduled to take around 11 hours, crossing the Atlantic Ocean before touching down in Paris. Three hours and 20 minutes into its journey, the plane exited Brazilian radar coverage and then completely vanished the plane disappeared literally out of thin air with no warning and no distress call made the first thing that people thought about was that this may have been a terrorist attack since 1970 more than 3000 air passengers have died during terrorist attacks but no terrorist organization claimed responsibility for flight 447 you know if they if an organization commits an act of terror typically They run screaming, we did it, we did it, they want the credit, otherwise, why did they do it? You know, no one knows it was them. There was no evidence of foul play, but other ideas began to circulate. Conspiracy theorists suggested that Flight 447 may have been shot out of the sky on purpose or something much more sinister may have happened to it. It was three days before search vessels from the Brazilian Navy reached the area where the flight disappeared when they got there, the floating debris they found only deepened the mystery. The wreckage was compressed in ways that no one had seen before. It had been compressed vertically. And so investigators came up with the scenario that the aircraft must have hit the sea at a high rate of descent with its nose high. That would be plausible, I guess, but it's apparently incredibly rare, like does not happen in a crash into the sea. Normally you see an aircraft hitting the sea hard with its nose down and going into the water, so what they found just did not make sense. When the plane's fuselage and black box were not found, there was really no way that investigators from France's Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, or BEA for short, there was no way for them to know why the plane crashed. But one factor did stand out, and that was the weather. Flight 447 crashed while, while flying through a zone of the Atlantic famous for its difficult flying conditions. Known as the Intertropical Convergence Zone, or ITCZ for short, it's home to some of the biggest thunderstorms on the planet. Around the equator, the heat creates a lot of uprise in the air, meaning there's very high-altitude lightning that wouldn't be found in most other areas of the world. Lightning is known to have taken down an aircraft, and in 1963, a lightning strike caused a Pan Am Boeing 707 to crash, killing 81 people. So could lightning have interfered with the automation system on Flight 447, causing it to crash? Research scientist Billy Martin, an expert in aircraft response to lightning strikes, I mean, there's an expert for everything, isn't there, simulated the strike that may have taken down Flight 447. The accumulation of charge in lightning is around half a million volts, which is several hundred times that of an overhead power cable. So, holy shit. (laughs) Like, imagine people die from downed power lines all the time. They cause a ton of damage. Imagine it being several hundred times stronger. That's the strike of lightning, at least in the ITCZ or whatever it's called. I forget the easy abbreviation. It could very easily be fatal is the point. In the simulation, the current flowed through the structure of the aircraft entering at the nose and exiting out the tail. And this is known as the Faraday cage effect. The electricity flows around specialized composite material on the outside of the aircraft, but the passengers and the equipment inside were protected. The surface acts like an aluminum structure and carries the current away from it. This means that modern planes should be completely safe in the event of a lightning strike. And most airliners today, they apparently get hit by lightning about once a year. There's so little effect that unless you were looking out the window exactly at the moment that the lightning struck the plane You probably wouldn't even know it happened. It's kind of scary to think about With lightning pretty much ruled out experts were no closer to solving the mystery of flight 447 With little evidence to go on they were pretty much baffled three intense searches failed to find the body of the plane finally two years later, two years later, robot submarines using novel sonar during the search, they also were used during the search for the Titanic, they found something about two and a half miles below the surface, and it was sections of the fuselage of Air France 447. As more of the plane was found, investigators had to reevaluate everything they thought they knew about the flight. Next, investigators looked into whether turbulence could have caused the plane to crash. It's a, you know, likely scenario. I'm sure it happens all the time. There's a huge amount of humidity in massive billowing thunderstorms that reach up higher than a jet aircraft can even fly. And uh, it's not recommended that anyone should fly through the middle of a towering thunderhead. Like, maybe don't do that. Weather conditions on the day of the crash would have made flying conditions extremely difficult. There was a huge convective cell the plane would have had to fly through that developed very quickly after takeoff there was no way for the pilots to know the intensity of the convective tower prior to departure so they were flying into this it was not on the radar at the time they took off it appeared out of nowhere it wasn't a weakening system though it was a strengthening system so total nightmare scenario by the plane or by the time the plane hit the weather system it was a major storm of 45 to 55,000 feet with possible frozen precipitation in it as well so you're flying through this horrific storm and being pelted by what i'm guessing is ice at that height There would be a lot of turbulence, and in some case, extreme turbulence have brought down planes. In 1997, turbulence contributed to a crash in Uruguay with 74 fatalities. Could the same have happened to Air France 447? I know I keep asking these questions. They're rhetorical. I don't need an answer. I'm going to try to explain the best I can. Turbulence can knock around a plane so much that the movement of the aircraft exceeds its structural limits, and they have been known to come apart when this happens. Again, total nightmare scenarios. I'm sorry if any of you guys are flying soon. Some theorize that this may have caused the compression of the wreckage and the nose up position. But on the night flight, 447 disappeared, 12 other planes flew through the same weather system with no safety concerns at all. Mm. This system alone wouldn't have been enough to bring down the plane. So again, there's no evidence to confirm that weather played a part in the crash. Then something happened that turned the investigation upside down. The black box and cockpit voice recorder were found. Investigators could begin to piece together what happened in the cockpit, you know, having these items, and it revealed a terrifying sequence of events. As the plane moved into the storm system, Captain Marc Dubois and First Officer Cedric or Pierre Cedric Bonin were at the controls. First Officer David Robert was sleeping. Bonin, who was the least experienced of the three, was concerned about the turbulence. He apparently did not want to fly through it, and I cannot say that I blamed him. So the captain, 58-year-old Mark Dubois, he was not flying at this time, had joined Air France in February 1998 from rival French domestic carrier Air Inter, which later merged into Air France, and had about 10,988 flying hours, of which 6,258 were as captain, including 1,700 hours on the Airbus A330, and he had carried out 16 rotations in the South American sector since arriving in the A330 division in 2007. He was an experienced pilot, but he was not flying, remember? The first relief officer, co-pilot in the left seat, 37-year-old David Robert, had joined Air France in July 1998, and he had 6,547 flying hours, of which 4,479 were on the Airbus A330. He had carried out 39 rotations in South American sector since arriving in the A330 division in 2002. Robert had graduated from École Nationale de L'Aviation Civile, I butchered that even though I took four years of French, one of the elite Grand École, and had transitioned from a pilot to a management job at the Airlines Operations Center. He served as a pilot on this flight to maintain his flying credentials. Yeah, I don't know, that kind of sketches me out a little bit. He's like not flying anymore, and they just put him back behind the controls of a plane so he can maintain his credentials. The first officer, co-pilot in the right seat, 32-year-old Pierre-Cedric Bonin, who was the pilot flying at the time of the accident, joined Air France in October 2003 and had 2,936 flight hours, of which 807 were on the Airbus A330. So, Really, not a lot at all. He had carried out five rotations in the South American sector since arriving in the division in 2008. His wife, this is sad, Isabel, a physics teacher, was also on board. Three hours after takeoff, First Officer Robert woke up to return to his duties, and he relieved Dubois, the captain and senior pilot, who then took his turn to get some rest, which was very normal for Air France. Like this is not sketchy behavior. They're not lazy. They're not doing something that's not you know up to code. The Airbus A330 is designed to be flown by two pilots, but the 13 hour duty time, which is the total flight duration as well as pre-flight preparation, required for the Rio to Paris route exceeded the 10 hours permitted before a pilot had to take a break as dictated by Air France's procedures. To comply with those procedures, flight 447 was crewed by three pilots, a captain and two first officers. With three pilots on board, each pilot could take a break in the A330's rest cabin, which was located behind the cockpit. Co-pilot Bonin was the pilot flying and suddenly the airspeed readings dropped dramatically and the plane's stall board started to go off. So if it's saying stall, you know what it means when an engine stalls, right? Like this is not an engine stalling, but just as an example, it means it's, it's off, yeah. So without an accurate speed reading, the fly-by-wire switched itself off. So the thing that stops the pilot from making mistakes turned off and Bonin then had full control of the plane. So the man with the least amount of flying experience is now in control of the plane. But why did the fly-by-wire turn itself off? Investigators later discovered that a small piece of equipment, which is a small tube that measures airspeed, malfunctioned. As the flight passed through the storm system, supercooled moisture in the air attached to the plane as ice crystals clogging the tubes and blocking their airflow. With those tubes blocked, the effect was to produce completely unrealistic low-speed indications. This had huge consequences. Without the fly-by-wire system, there was nothing to stop the pilot from making mistakes. Whatever the pilot did from there on out, the plane followed that instruction, no matter how batshit crazy it may have been. Pilots can practice handling a plane in that scenario in flight simulators. Who knows if this one did or not. In a normal phase of flight, the airplane is protected from pilot errors. So it won't let pilots fly at speeds that stress the structure of the airplane. And if they do, the airplane will take over and it cannot be overridden. The pilot cannot override whatever the airplane decides to do. The plane will always save itself from catastrophe, but it's a different story if the automated fly-by-wire is out of service. The system will no longer stop a pilot from going beyond the limitations of the plane's structure. The pilots must be careful to make sure that they maintain the airspeed within safe flight protocols. The pilot assistance on flight 447 shut off just seconds after the tubes froze over but within minutes, internal heaters melted the ice and the airspeed indicators came back online. All the plane's instruments were functioning perfectly again with one exception. Once the system had shut down, it would not be possible to get back the full fly-by-wire operation until landing in Paris. So they were three hours and 20 minutes into their flight and it was an 11-hour flight. They had that many more hours to go before they could fix... fly-by-wire operation, and the pilot's commands were no longer limited by computer protection. But flying without computer assistance has been the norm for pilots, right? We all know that, since planes were invented, so it shouldn't have affected the safety of the passengers. So could the fly-by-wire malfunction be to blame for the crash? Just minutes before the disappearance of flight 447, there was nothing wrong with the plane. That's why this to me is Incredibly mysterious when I started looking into it I'm like there was was nothing wrong with the plane like what the hell happened? Everything should have been normal But the crash was less than five minutes away How was it possible for a plane with no mechanical issues being flown by three trained pilots? how was it possible for it to fall out of the sky in under five minutes after you know lights start flashing and the fly-by-wire system goes off With nowhere else to look, investigators had to consider a very uncomfortable possibility. The only place to look was directly at the pilots. What did they do and why did they do it? Bonin, who was the least experienced pilot on board, was at the controls when the fly-by-wire system shut down. Bonin reached over to the stick and began a series of what were described as inexplicable maneuvers. He kept pulling the nose of the plane up dramatically and dangerously, and the plane went into a sudden climb of roughly 7,000 feet per minute, which is an extremely dangerous and rapid climb. The maneuver began a catastrophic sequence of events. In less than a minute, the plane rapidly gained altitude, climbing to 38,000 feet. As it does so, its nose tilts up to 18 degrees beyond horizontal, and the stall board sounded. Suddenly, the plane started losing altitude rapidly. Even though the engines were operating, the plane began to fall toward the ocean. Can you even imagine? I don't want to. At that point, the plane was in such an extreme position that it could no longer fly. Airplane wings work by creating a pressure difference between the air above and below them. The lower pressure of the wing provides lift, but when tilted too steeply, the wings stop generating lift and the plane stalls and begins dropping out of the sky. So this is happening and very confused from the cockpit recording device. uh, You could hear Bonin exclaim, shit, I don't have control of the airplane anymore. And two seconds later, I don't have control of the airplane at all. And Yeah, so Robert responded to this by saying, controls to the left and took over control of the aircraft. He pushed his side stick forward to lower the nose and recover from the stall. However, oh God, Bonin was still pulling his side stick back and the inputs canceled each other out and triggered an audible dual input warning. So from what I have read, stalls are terrifying experiences for pilots and even stunt pilots treat them with the utmost respect. When an aircraft stalls, pilots usually aren't referring to the engine, they are referring to the wings. To generate lift once the plane stalls, the pilot must point the nose down. And this is referred to as a kindergarten level of flying or just flying 101. It's basic knowledge. I said basic, basic knowledge that everyone with a pilot's license should have. If you are flying, especially a commercial airline or anyone, anything carrying people other than yourselves, You should know this, but Bonin didn't lower the plane's nose. He did the opposite by pulling back on his controls with the engines at maximum thrust. His maneuvers made no sense to other pilots and investigators who reviewed the cockpit log and the black box. Suddenly, the stall warning stopped, but only because Bonin was trying to ascend so steeply that the plane's computers were just rejecting the instrument's readings altogether. It took 57 seconds for Dubois to come into the cockpit. Still groggy from sleep, Dubois had to assess the situation from scratch. At this point, it was pretty late in the game. There was a lot of confusion, noise, and very little communication between the pilots. The plane was plummeting toward the Atlantic at almost three miles per minute. The cockpit displays were telling the pilots exactly what was happening, but they did not believe them. They were looking at the instruments, but they just could not see what they were told. I guess they were in denial about the fact that the airplane that they were piloting was going to crash into the ocean. Three minutes after the tubes malfunctioned, the plane was at 16,000 feet and its fate was sealed. The plane's nose would have needed to be lowered down by 45 degrees or more at that point below the horizon in order to regain control, then quickly pulled up before they gained too much speed and pull out. So below 16,000 feet, it was game over. Finally, way too late, Captain Dubois appeared to figure out what was happening. The plane was going to crash into the ocean. Robert screamed at Dubois on the CVR. We've lost all control of the aeroplane. We don't understand anything. We've tried everything. Soon after this, Robert said to himself, climb four consecutive times. So he said, climb, 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 just like trying to will this this plane to work his will. Bonin heard this and replied, but I've been at maximum nose up for a while. And when Captain Dubois heard this, he realized that Bonin was calling the stall and shouted, no, 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 don't climb. No, no. When Robert heard this, he told Bonin to give him control of the airplane. And in response to this, Bonin temporarily gave the controls to Robert. Robert pushed his side stick forward to try to regain lift for the airplane to exit the stall. However, the aircraft was too low to recover from the stall. Shortly thereafter, the ground proximity warning system sounded an alarm warning the crew about the aircraft's imminent crash into the ocean. In response, Bonin, without informing his colleagues, pulled his side stick all the way back and said, fuck, we're going to crash. This can't be true. What's happening? The last recording on the CVR was Dubois saying 10 degrees pitch altitude. At 2.14 a.m., Air France 447 crashed into the ocean, killing everyone on board. The aircraft was carrying 216 passengers, three aircrew, and nine cabin crew in two cabins of service. Among the 216 passengers were 126 men, 82 women, eight children, and one infant. Even with the evidence from the black box flight recorded, the real cause of the crash remains a mystery. Could it be that the pilots were so reliant on the computer system that they just did not know how to cope when it failed? The investigation seemed to suggest a catastrophic pilot error. Did 228 people really die because of the failings of three men in the cockpit? Investigators apparently just couldn't point at the three pilots and say that they failed. This crash ignited a debate that had been going on in aviation for quite some time, and that was how much automation is too much. Automated systems like the A330's fly-by-wire reduce the risk of human error, or they're supposed to. But one of the great problems in aviation history is the thinking that airplanes are so safe that they can't be crashed. It seemed the pilots of Flight 447 fell victim to the paradox of automation. The more machines keep us safe, the less we can look after ourselves when they fail. The problem with so deeply relying on automation is that pilots may not be able to handle a situation that a computer can't handle. Or, you know, if their system shuts down, then they just don't know what to do. And that is what seemed to have happened here. Since 2009, automation has contributed to more fatal accidents, including a train collision on the Washington Metro and a crash landing of a Boeing 777 in San Francisco. As automation plays an increasing role, the balance between technology and human oversight will become more critical than ever. In response to the crash, you know, when they learned of it, Air France established a crisis center at Terminal 2D for the 60 to 70 relatives and friends who arrived at Charles de Gaulle Airport to pick up arriving passengers. How just absolutely horrific. But many of the passengers on Flight 447 were connecting to other destinations worldwide. In the days that followed, Air France contacted close to 2,000 people who were related to or friends of the victims. On June 20th, 2009, Air France announced that each victim's family would be paid roughly €17,500 in initial compensation. In the BEA's final report, released at a news conference on July 5th, 2012, it was concluded that the aircraft suffered temporary inconsistencies between the airspeed measurements, which was likely resulting from ice crystals obstructing the aircraft's pilot tubes, or pitot tubes, I'm sorry, which caused the autopilot to disconnect, after which the crew reacted incorrectly, to say the least, and ultimately caused the aircraft to enter an aerodynamic stall from which it did not recover. The accident is the deadliest in the history of Air France, as well as the deadliest aviation accident involving the Airbus A330. So, how do we feel? That's a sobering one, isn't it? Well, after seeing Final Destination, I feel like we have all imagined what it would be like to be in a plane crash. Just the absolute helpless terror of being in the sky in this massive hunk of metal and composite material and knowing that there is almost no chance whatsoever of surviving a crash into the ocean. I'm cognizant of that fact anytime I'm on a flight, you know, that it could crash. But I think most of us believe that it can't or won't happen to us all of the things that go into getting a plane into the sky in the first place and just one teeny tiny thing goes wrong and that's it the plane is going to crash just makes you realize how fragile everything really is all these things that we think are safe and trustworthy and fail proof and just one little thing just destroys it how much faith we have put in machines and automation it's a bracing reality check. Uh, okay, now have fun traveling for the holidays and don't get freaked out. <laughs> I hope—I really hope I didn't scare you. But like we, we have to be aware of these things, that not everything is infallible, that not everything is 100% safe, and that some things unfortunately are just completely out of our hands. Well, thank you for listening uh, to this palette cleanser for murder, but still involved death and tragedy. I'm sorry, it wasn't a lighter subject material. If you like what you hear, you can hear more episodes on Mondays and Fridays on all podcast platforms. On social media, you can find me on Instagram at Autumn's Oddcast, on Facebook at Autumn's Oddities. And on Twitter at Autumn's Odd Pod. Uh, If you join Patreon at any level, you get early access, ad-free episodes. If you join at higher levels, you get some merchandise discounts. You get some free stickers. You get my undying love and affection and appreciation. That's my my business spiel. I appreciate you listening. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here.